Whitney Rochester is a trained female empowerment coach whose mission is to provide holistic emotional and mental support to victimized adult women who have suffered sexual trauma as girls. Whitney's life did not always seem as fulfilling as it is today as she too suffered child sexual abuse at the hands of someone close to her family. This was the open door to years of rebelliousness as a teenager before her encounter with Christ brought forth the starting of her healing journey. Today, she is a wife and mother of two beautiful girls. Listen to her story of survival on this episode of When I Was a Girl. So welcome, Whitney, to the When I Was a Girl podcast. Whitney Rochester, like, I've told you before, there's something about your name. It it just sounds like a strong brand to me. And I don't know what what you have in store ahead of you with your your brand name. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But I know that that there are some plans and I've had the privilege of getting a chance to, to meet you and work with you. And I can see how driven and motivated you are. Yeah, so I, I'm excited to getting into your story, your life story, and, and some of the reasons behind your drive in life. Um, so yeah, why don't you tell me what your life was like when you were a girl? Hi, thank you for having me, Stephanie. I am honored that you have me here on your podcast. Yay! <laughs> But I am Whitney Rochester and I have been through things. I've seen things. I've been to places where, you know, I shouldn't have been. And I remember when I was 16 years old, I said to myself, I'm 16, but I feel like I've lived half a life already. Mm. And I mean, when I was, when I was eight years old, I was molested by my stepfather. But before, and that happened for up to three years. So when I was 11, it stopped. Um, but before I was eight, hmm, mm-hmm. I grew up in a predominantly female environment where I saw only women, my mother, my grandmother, my aunts, and my sisters. So basically, if something needed to be done, it was done by the female, my mother, my aunts. We didn't wait around on men to kind of, you know, fix a light bulb or, you know, fix a broken pipe. So mm-hmm. we had to learn what it was like to, you know, rule things. And, and that's, I guess that's where my independence comes from. Yeah. Uh, and this was all in the same other, house. Every, all of you lived in the same house. In the same house, right. So it was four sisters, four sisters of us, including myself and then my mother. And then occasionally, you know, my aunt would be there and my grandmother lived with us for a period of time before she died. But yeah, as a little girl, I was a tomboy, actually. I was always the one to be scaling the fences and to be initiating cricket games because I loved cricket when I was little. and um, But that didn't take away from me being girly at the same time because I loved, uh, I'd say what, Hannah Montana. I loved all of those little girly stuff. Right. There was like this balance, right? There was a balance between being a tomboy and a girly girl <laughs> in a predominantly female, female environment. So when you used to play cricket, you used to love to bowl or you used to bat? Which one? <laughs> ah, I would love to bat. Oh. Yeah, I love to bat because I used to love run, run down, um, you know, bat with the ball far out and then run, run, oh. um, get my time to run, right? 
Ah, okay, okay. Yeah. Are you feeling mm-hmm. your six? What? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So I love I love those kinds of things, but even 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 being um you know a busybody, I'd say being a tomboy and all, I would always also be very introspective. So I'd love to sit down and write poems and. I'd write uh, songs and I'd write, I just be writing. Anywhere you saw me, you saw a pen and a paper as well. So I'd always be reflecting and writing those things, even when I was six and seven years old. Wow. Hmm. Yeah, I loved to write from when I was very little. Well, that speaks volumes because you've taken that yeah. into your adult life and we'll, we'll, mm-hmm. we'll get into it. But, but that's interesting that from such a young age, you had started doing that. Yeah. So tell me, um, if, you know, after having that kind of rounded upbringing, it sounds like, you know, even though there was that, that absence of a male figure, your life still sounds like there was a, a level of balance to it. Um, when do you think that changed as you were growing up? Well, actually, I, I was enjoying my life, I'd say, up until I was, the eight and not to take away from the fact that I was still enjoying my life while I was eight. It's just that I didn't understand what was happening to me for what it was really until I got to around 13. But I'd say my mother uh, taught us a lot of discipline. Mm -hmm. And so before all of what happened to me happened, we pretty much grew up where we, we, we saw our mother giving us responsibilities to do we went to school, went to primary school, came home, and my, my older sister would be in charge of everything until my mother came home. And so that's how we saw things, the pattern, you know, being comfortable like that. Uh, however, one evening, I, and I said, my mother didn't have a male figure around us, so we didn't really know what it was like to have a father state father figure so we were happy up until that point and I remember one evening she came home with a bag of grocery and it wasn't just a bag of grocery it was somebody else with the bag of grocery mm-hmm. and um, every, now, every now and then we'd see him and then it was a constant thing where he'd now be coming every night so instead of every other night it would now be every night until he was staying overnight until now we had to be waiting on him and carrying dinner to you know to him on the veranda for example and we'd have to wait our turn to get into the bathroom before after um, before after he was finished so he now became a part of our operations it was sort of i felt i felt like it disrupted the natural flow of things because we didn't have a meal in the house. Right. You know? I know this, this is feeling a bit strange to see Straight, right. this person was now living with you. Yes, it did. Right. Was there a point where a conversation was had in terms of, you know, introducing him and how things would have transitioned going forward? Like did, did a conversation happen with you and your sisters between all of you and your mom? I honestly, I honestly can't say that. Because I don't remember. Okay. But I remember at one point, though, we we just sort of got used to it. Gotcha. So it wasn't a discussion to be had because we we didn't 
up until I was about eight, as I said, we didn't have that. And so to see it happening, we sort of got into the idea that, okay, this is what is going, this is what life is going to be like now, right. you know, having this man around. So it wasn't a case where she sat down and spoke to us. She just, it just happened and we accepted it for what it was because I believe it was that it was change and we had to accept the change whether or not we liked it. Mm. Mm-hmm. So what happened as, as he made his, his, you know, transition and became part of the family how did that become problematic Mm. all right i learned about sexual grooming maybe later on in the journey but he took a very particular liking to me Mm. so there were four sisters of us but out of the four i would always be the one who would be forcing to do homework in the evening and you know I'd have to be in his lap to do this homework and like if he left the house you know to go out because I don't remember him working so he left the house and he came back in the evenings he would always have something special for me outside of you know my sisters they they didn't get anything it was always me and when he sent them to the shop because we didn't really go to supermarket once per month like you know we as adults do now but we we had to go to shop and instead of him sending me or sending both of us, like me and somebody else, you'd always send everybody else except me. So I'd be the one at home with him. Mm-hmm. And during those that, that period of grooming, he didn't really touch me. Okay. So he would, right, he would be giving me, you know, he I'd say he'd be building the trust then. So I didn't feel any way awkward when he really started to make his advances and do the inappropriate thing. Right, okay. And then... And then it started really when I would say closer to, so the grooming was a process before the whole uh, inappropriateness and then closer to when I was nine. Well, the grooming is part of the inappropriateness, but it, yeah, but in terms of the physical, right. Mm-hmm. right, in terms of the physical, it didn't really start happening until I was closer to nine. Um, the day when it started, it was not anything drastic. Hmm. So he, he just touched, <clears throat> he touched and he felt, and it told me that it was okay because now I am his girlfriend. Oh. Yeah. Wow. So, so if you see, so if you see a pattern here, if you see a sort of trajectory here, so it was getting me familiar so much so to trust and then Mm-hmm. initiating by saying oh I'm your girlfriend so by saying I'm your girlfriend now it leaves up, up an impression in the mind to say okay it is okay because this is what girlfriends and boyfriends do yeah so now so that quickly moved from you know being absent from school often because I'd be pretending that I was sick to um every night mm-hmm. night after night after night for three years. Do you think that his favoritism towards you was obvious? I mean, to anyone else in the family, his sisters, to the adults around, do you think it was noticeable? In a sense, no, because he was very discreet. Hmm. He was very, yeah, he was very discreet. There was nothing to say, oh, um, you know, he's taking a special liking toward me because most of what he did 
it seemed innocent. Oh, nothing is wrong with him showing me how to do homework. So when persons were on the veranda, for example, and I'd be there in, the, in his back, it would be fine and he wouldn't be doing anything. But when everybody got bored and went inside to watch TV or something else, then is when the touching started and, you know, the kissing started and those kind of things. So it wasn't, he, he wasn't very obvious with it. Yeah. And then, right. And by nature, by virtue of him even, you know, asking me to pretend that I was sick so that he could try to have sex with me, then it was something nowhere. Nobody would really guess because I would be the one. They didn't know that he was the one telling me to pretend I would be the one at the forefront saying, oh, my belly hurting me so bad, I can't go to school today, or I have a fever, or I have, a, I have the flu, or, you know, mm-hmm. things like that. I'm catching, the, I'm catching the cold. So he'd be the force behind me telling me and influencing me to lie. Yeah. Yeah. So nobody guessed. Nobody would guess. And Stephanie, it got really, it got really bad because even I was sharing with somebody last night that you know it got to a point where he started to penetrate, but mm-hmm. it didn't feel, it didn't feel, it was painful. And mm-hmm. I remember one time I couldn't walk. Oh my um, Because he was, he was, of course, he was an older man. He's thirty-four, and I was eight, nine years old, and there was blood everywhere. And I couldn't walk and I was limping. And at one point, I remember, I think my grandmother said, how many walks are funny? But nobody saw, nobody thought of it as anything, you know, oh, this is what is happening. Because I didn't tell, because he was saying, oh, don't tell, don't talk. We we are girlfriend and boyfriend, and this is what girlfriends and boyfriends do. So I remember one time limping because he tried to get inside of me as a little girl and it didn't work. And interestingly, I read a report that, you know, for females in a, in the study that they did, the Child Trends Report of 2013, they said 60% of the respondents they interviewed didn't tell because, and suffer in silence because penetration didn't happen. And so... Mm-hmm. A lot of persons feel invalidated because what happened to them wasn't penetration. You know what I mean? Yes. So, yes. Yeah. But we know, Whitney, that um, molestation, you know, it, any form of inappropriateness with touching, um, fondling of genital areas, anything like that, it is classified mm-hmm. as molestation. So, as molestation, yes. Yeah, yeah. So I'm very happy that you're pointing out that, that yes, many people um, don't regard it as, as, um, as molestation when there isn't penetration, but it is, mm-hmm. in fact, is, molestation. Yeah. yeah, with or without the penetration. You know, I mean, I just feel so sad listening and I'm imagining that nine-year-old girl believing that she is in a, a relationship. You know, she, she has a boyfriend. This big man is her uh-huh. boyfriend. And you're just thinking of that impressionable mind, you know? Yeah. Um, boy, I, it's just, it's, it's stomach-turning when you hear when you listen to it and you, you, you realize that things could be happening right in front of your eyes. You and know? you don't know. And you don't know. Yeah. Yeah. So how did things progress for for you? Uh mo- much of the three years that was that was what happened. The attempts to penetrate, the fondling, the kissing, the touching, mm-hmm. you know, the slapping on their bottom when nobody's looking and those sorts of things. And um, you know, it was that that's that that's what that that's what the pattern was for three years. And what really stopped it? I guess he just decided to to stop, but it was more me deciding that this 
this doesn't feel good. Mm-hmm. And I think that happened immediately after I, um, after that horrible day when, you know, I, I was limping. Um, it stopped when I remember one day after school, before I didn't go to school that day. And I, <laughs> I didn't go to school that day. And I had a white shirt. I wore yellow and white to school and I had a white shirt to wash. I remember in the bathroom, I was washing my shirt and I said, this doesn't feel good because I was there all day with him by myself. This don't feel good. I don't want to do this anymore. And he was expecting me to come back inside the room to, you know, to fondle me and to have me sit sit down mm-hmm. um, on him. And uh, he he was expecting me to come back and I didn't. I just washed my shirt, pinned it on the line and I went outside to sit down by myself and I cried that day mm-hmm. because I said, I'm not, I don't want to do this anymore. Yeah. And six months after, he didn't, he didn't make any advances at me again after that day. And he was just there. And every day after that, I tell him that I'm going to tell, mega tell. But I just didn't. And six months later, I was getting ready for school. And my mother was getting ready for work. And she was in a green shirt, I remember. And I bust through the door and I said, Mommy, you know what this person did? And she said, no. And she's now started because she's looking at him and I'm looking at him and he's looking at me. Very and nice. I said, because he, he's there, he's there now. His eyes were wide open. He's looking because he's wondering, Lord, what is she going to do now? And I just said it. I said, Daniel is fumbling me. And she said, what? She was so surprised and everybody came down and she was, she was, she asked him to step back and, you know, I was, t- I was telling her what exactly he did and he said, Lysha tells Sandra, Lysha tells. And, um, so it was horrible. The whole time while, he, while you were reporting on him, he, he just denied it. He was in full denial. A lie me tell and a big man me like. And he was, he was just denying it altogether. And so right away, she took me to the police station. Now he didn't come. And that was his window of opportunity to leave. Mm-hmm. And can I tell you, I have never seen him again after that day, that Wednesday morning I told on him. Mm-mm. Yeah, he was never, he was never to be found again. Disappeared. The, yeah. thing, the thing that bothers me about that is, is that, this man is free out there, just just out there, and who knows who else has, has come in, in in the way of his harmful tendencies, you know. You know, the question that a lot of persons asked was what happened to his daughter? Because he had a he had a daughter as well. And mm-hmm. everybody questioned that. Mm-hmm. Everybody questioned what happened to her too because the fact that he would do that to somebody else's child and he had a child there was a question of what was he doing to her that nobody knew knew about exactly right so he was he disappeared um and that was a challenge for me because i um i needed closure Mm. and so growing up you know get in this era of smartphones and everybody being technologically advanced mm-hmm. i tried on several occasions to find him so i'd be um i would be googling the directory i'd be in the yellow pages looking for every name that i saw that matched his mm-hmm. and i'd be calling these numbers every name that i saw dnt i'd be calling um, and for a while, I just could not, it, I could not get it. I could not get through. I was on Facebook looking. I was on, 
you know, everywhere that you could possibly have a directory, I was there looking for him. And I couldn't because I, here at 14, 15 years old, I just felt like the system that was designed to protect me had failed me yeah. because the police, the police, all oh, their thing was they can't find him. They don't know what, they can't hold somebody. They can't charge somebody that they can't find. And so it, that, that was part of the devastation for me. The yeah. fact that he could not be found and I tried to find him. Yeah, I am so sorry. I mean, that's, a, that's another just layer of, of devastation, as you said it. Yeah. Well, Whitney, how did things... How did how were things between you and your family after all of this is now on the table? Hmm. It's interesting that you ask, Stephanie, because it didn't exist. Really? It didn't it didn't exist in my family. Nobody talked about it. Nobody liked to talk about it. So whenever I brought it up that, you know, I probably need counseling or, you know, just to just to be talking about it. Nobody liked when I spoke about it, oh, that's just another sad story. Every day you come with this sad story. No, make nobody know your business. No talk about it. No carry it out of the house. You know, that's not nothing for people to know. Oh, yeah. And so it was what it just was never talked about. And what that did for me was it built a very thick wall of resentment. So I was hurting and there was just, I got initial counseling from Sisoka, but that was only for, I'd say, maybe the day when it was reported. And that was it. And so here I was now suffering in my silence, being resentful because I felt like nobody cared enough to, to, to at least hear my side of the story. Um, and so growing up, I would, I would I just would be very sheltered. So I wouldn't be talking to people because I felt like they didn't want to hear me. Mm-hmm. So I just grew up writing. So I became very, yeah. I became very withdrawn, and I, I, I plunged into um, depression. So I'd be writing my poems. Remember, I said I used to write poems. So my poems went from flowery and airy to dark and gloomy, mm-hmm. and my drawings now changed from sunshine and and butterflies to a gunman shooting somebody, me being the gunman and somebody being shot. And um, even music wow. that I listened to changed from I'd listen to Paramore and I'd listen to a lot of Eminem. Because Eminem to me is just very angry. Mm-hmm. And so I'd be listening to everything that 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 soothed the the sadness inside of my heart. I'd be listening to those things and I'd be entertaining those things. And so I believe even then those are one of the things that um really I'd say massaged the whole idea of committing suicide because here I felt no that nobody cared. Nobody cared and I was left here dying while I was living. You yeah. know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And then in, in this this carried through into your teenage years, I take it. Man, it did. I people people listen sometimes when I talk and they don't they didn't see they didn't see it. So I'd go to counseling Maybe I'd see once a week with my guidance counselor, but it got to a point where every day I tried to kill myself. So I had I had a razor blade in the back of my phone. I had a razor phone. You remember razor phone? Yes. I had a I had a razor phone, the the long one, not the flip one, the long one. And I had it in, in I had a razor blade in the back of my phone every day. 
And each time I was triggered, each time I was triggered, I would be, um, I would have that razor blade ready, ready to, to do something to myself. I remember one evening my mother brought home caustic soda and I sat there in the bathroom with the bleach looking at the caustic soda and I said, what if I should what if I should um, just do this? Mm-mm. What if I should do this? What will happen next? Oh my goodness. You know, and I listen to these, these different ways that I believe it was just the enemy planting these ideas, you know, because sometimes you wonder where did that, where, where does the, the thought even come from? It comes from this place of darkness, you know, it comes from, from nothing but the enemy. Yeah. Yeah. Whole- but you know what's interesting though, Stephanie? Mm-hmm. When I was going to school, everybody saw me as top of the top, the cream of the crop. I would be excelling in academics. I'd be sitting on the prefect body. I would be in ISCF leading um leading the charge. I remember one time I was the vice president of the ISCF. I remember getting awards after awards at prize giving. I was Miss Holy Childhood, not I'd say I would say what first runner up mm-hmm. and I would be camp queen for Jamaica Baptist Union. I got first ah I got not camp queen, camp princess. I got first place in their in their Sunday school exams one year. So I would be excelling and I would be overachieving and I'd be doing all of these things. Yet still people just did not understand why if I am here exuding all of these positive, right. why is it that I am still Still attempting suicide. I remember got bad to a point where I was up at UA every week, University Hospital of the West Indies every week for uh for therapy because they'd be ch- and they'd be trying to you know find out why I'm always cutting my hair. I remember one time I had maybe 153 cuts on mm. my left hand. Mm. I counted 153 cuts on my left hand because I just had to. No, I was making all of these tries, but I was dying inside. And I remember one time also I had to be about war 21 getting therapy because they felt as if you know, um, this girl is clinically depressed. We can't give her pills because she's going to, she might just kill herself. And, and uh, you see, Stephanie, what really turned around for me, mm-hmm. because all of that is just way, <laughs> a weight of darkness. What really, what really turned around for me was getting to this place when I was, say, 17. Yeah, I remember when I was about 17. Mm-hmm. I said, I, I will not die in this dark place i got i got tired of attempting suicide it was like a cycle of depression it was a cycle of darkness it was a whirlwind and i really i said god there had to be something else at 17 i remember saying to myself there has to be something else yeah and so that was, I believe, the turning point. So even though I did not get my healing right there at 17, it mm. began It began the work because it was then that I decided that there had to be something else and I will not die in this dark place. This trauma will not be the final say. It does not have the final say in my life. And so that was where I began to now seek out real and genuine help. And it did, I was not fully healed and I was not fully free until I was, say, 23 years old. 
because a lot happened from I was 17 up until I was 23. Okay. Tell us a little yeah. bit about what happened um, between that, that time frame. All right. So some of the things that happened were that, okay, I started now to, to date. Okay. And, right, I started to date and I recognized patterns, a pattern. So I would be chasing after men who looked a lot like the man that I that molested me mm-hmm. and I that's interesting I just couldn't, yeah <laughs> mm-hmm. I couldn't understand why it was that I was trying to get rid of him so much out of my mind but yeah. here I was attracting men that looked like him men that were verbally abusive men that were physically some of them abusive um, I'd be in. I'd be following a pattern of just listening to darkness and follow the friends that I had. I could not keep a friend to save my life. I could not have a friend for more than six months because there was just a barrier of communication. I could not trust people, and um, I just felt as if you know things were just not right. And even with my mother, the relationship I had with her was very stiff. I'd say. Because I just felt like she did not understand me. She didn't care to find out, you know, how how do I progress from being a troubled teenager, as they like to say, to, you know, an adult woman who's now making decisions of her own. And I recognized those patterns. And part of my journey, my journey of healing, was leaning into God. And people think, oh, when you mention God, it's a bad thing or it's a pie-in-the-sky approach and God is invisible and how does an invisible God help with tangible problems? Mm-hmm. But I had to rec- <laughs> Yeah. I had to I had to recognize I had to recognize one I had to first identify what my pain point was. And then two, I had to now become honest about the fact that this is what was hurting me. Yeah. And then three I had to now lean into this invisible God. Lean into this God and believe that he would now meet me where I was with all the patterns, with all the wrong men that I was I was choosing, with all the bad friends, all the friendships that ended, with everything that was going on. I had to accept that God would love me where I was and not some future version of me. Mm-hmm. And, and you, that way, you would say, Whitney, that you, you had this appreciation of God and who he is um, from mm-hmm. From what stage of your life? From from your teenage years, you 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 had been pursuing a relationship with God. Well, actually, I w- I got baptized when I was thirteen. Okay. Um, and so I had a lot of biblical, I'd say, principles working with. So I'd be at Sunday school, I'd be at Bible studies, I'd be in ICF, I'd be in, I, I, I would, I had a religious, I'd say, background from I was a, in my early teens, gotcha. but mm-hmm. it didn't really, it didn't really hit home for me until later on. I'd say maybe, as I said, was perhaps 17, 18 years old. Right. I really didn't start to get an appreciation of God and who he was up until that time in my life. When you said you began to lean into. Lean, right. Lean into and embrace the fact that one thing, that one principle, that God was willing to meet me exactly where I was and not some future version of me. Yeah. And some of the women that I coach, some of the people that I talk to, I tell them that God loves you regardless of what happened to you. God loves you regardless of how you respond and how you react. 
-hmm. you know you don't yeah i tell i tell people all the time that god sees you for exactly who you are and your trauma is not you what happened to you is not who you are and so i had to learn that the hard way i had to learn that through not connecting with god to a point that i started to question god but what and 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 much of what my prayers on my journey much of what my prayers sounded like were i hate men god i don't like men Mm -hmm. you know so i had to now become honest with the god who made my heart Mm-hmm. Because I figured that if he made me, he must understand me as well. Yes. Yeah. That sounds fair to me too. Yeah. Yeah. And as you as you, you continued taking that approach to your healing, um, mm-hmm. how did you see things beginning to, to to change, even if those changes were happening internally? Can you can you explain what what some of those changes were? Internally my thoughts changed gradually. Mm-hmm. So so my thoughts changed and two, I stopped attempting suicide. Mm-hmm. And I think that was a that was a major milestone for me. Mm-hmm. That I stopped that I was that I stopped commit that I stopped attempting suicide. I started to embrace that people actually cared. Yes. And I had a counselor, a guidance counselor in school, and I had a teacher, my religious education teacher, Miss Elizabeth Green. She, I have to mention her name because boy, she's a real gem. She sat down and she listened to me. So I allowed myself permission to, 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 to accept that persons were out there who genuinely cared and understood. Yes. So I'd be seeing her every day and she'd be there reading my poems. She'd be there talking to me and much, much of how she, her, her approach wasn't talking really. She asked questions and she allowed me a chance to answer my own questions Hmm. so she right that was her approach and so by doing that she didn't give me any answers she allowed me to answer my own um and i met a guidance counselor and she listened to me she believed in me she cheered me on and i felt like things were turning around for me slowly i left high school I got a job and I started to now believe that based on exposure now to different ways of living, different people at different levels of the society, mm-hmm. that not everybody was out here to get me. Yeah. My abuser is not omnipresent, you know, so he's not in everybody that I meet, you know. So things started to change in those ways for me. Yes. Yeah. And looking at the woman that you are today, and the kind of purpose, um, you know, mm-hmm. when I began, I said that, in, you know, in my interactions with you, I find you to be very driven. How do you think that your experience has contributed to, to that trait that you have? Stephanie! <laughs> <laughs> oh, um, okay. So I, I go by female empowerment coach primarily because of this one reason. Mm. females need a place I, I go by this that females need a place where they can just be until they become when I was going through the thick of things the depth of my pain I did not feel as if people understood I just felt like the therapists the counselors they just took on a very generic or vague approach to healing so they only not that counseling is bad this is not to discredit that but I just didn't feel as if they, they saw my 
my situation as an individual thing and not a general thing. Mm. Um, and so I, I provide a space for women because I feel like I did not get that. And that's why also I laud your, your initiative, Girls First International, because it meets girls where they are at. Some of them is the first time they're ever talking about their story um, and their experience. Mm-hmm. And so these kinds of spaces are relevant because what I find too, Steph, is that a lot of, we have a lot of, you know, um, movements in the air now. People are pushing this live your best life narrative and not that I have a problem with that. It's just that we tend to ignore the real issues that are affecting women. And so we, 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 we don't hit them head on. So I'm driven because I felt like Nobody was there to listen to me. Nobody was there to understand me. And so I want to create that space where women are heard, where women are understood without any form of judgment attached to that. Right, right. And that's so process, so important to the healing process, isn't it, Whitney? You know, just there's no way to really get to that point of true freedom. Yeah. Um, one, without really confronting the reality of what has happened. And then... I would say, you know, I think you and I would say, that, um, and then to seek that intervention from Christ and yes. Him coming in into the deepest, deepest of areas where nobody else can penetrate, um, yeah. and bringing that that kind of healing that we need, which can be continuous. You know, yeah. it, it's it, it can be an ongoing stage by stage kind of process. Yes. Yeah. Where would you say you are at in your life right now, personally? Mm-hmm. I am mentally, I am more content. I am stable emotionally. And I say that to say at one point, it was difficult for me to listen to other women's story without breaking down and, and, and not, you know, wanting to go there and castrate these men myself. Mm-hmm. Uh, because that's another thing being angry you know you listen and you get angry oh, yeah. but I'm at this point now by the grace of God where I am able to listen and empathize and be compassionate without taking on misdirected anger mm-hmm. and I am at this point now where I I want to help as many women as possible and so much of what I do much as much of my advocacy is for the women who have never told their stories before and the women who are partway in their healing but don't know where to continue. Mm-hmm. Um, much of my work is centered around honesty, telling stories, finding the creative ways to tell stories. Um, some, of, some, of my, some of my persons, they are anonymous and um, I work with those persons too who are anonymous who really don't know where to, to turn to. Um, so, so working with you, even with the Healing Through Honesty Workshop and yeah. um, Nikisha Lowe and, you know, working with the agencies, getting to understand what their roles are and those things. So I'd say I am constantly learning. I'm constantly growing, mm-hmm. but it's coming from a place of mental and emotional stability. Mm-hmm. No. <clears throat> Glory to God. That's just amazing, Whitney. Yeah. Honestly, and when I... When I look at you and I think of your journey up to this point, I find that you are such a role model for, for mm-hmm. women, you know, whether whether they've gone through trauma or not. I, I, I find your approach with honesty shows that there is value in, in, in living in that truth, 
you know, and um, and the freedom that it, it brings, the, the ability to to have that mental and emotional stability is huge. That's that's not yeah. even that's that's not that's not anything to take lightly at all. And that's only on the grace of God. I don't take any credit for myself, Stephanie, honestly, yeah. because when I look back at how horribly it was for me, um, I couldn't have done any of that by myself. Where I'm at now, I couldn't have reached this place without God helping me. I couldn't have, I could not, I could not stand here today and and talk to women um, about men and talk to women about sex and talking to women about self-assurance and all of those things. Mm -hmm. Because I, I couldn't, I could not do it without the grace of God. It's God and God alone. Only God can tell you how I'm here today to stand up and say, I chose not to. Let my, my my trauma devastate me to a point of death. And I preach it, I say it all the time. Your trauma will not have the final say in your life if you don't allow it to. Right. So it's only by the grace of God. Boy, this has been so good. This has been so good, you know. And I and I look forward to um just the different initiatives are, that are going to be born out of your mission, your vision. Um, I look forward to partnering with you. And yes, we, we do have the Healing Through Honesty workshop coming up. Um, I want to, to, to tell people to support for that. We'll definitely send out more information on that. But I just want to thank you, Whitney, for, for joining us and for, for being so open and sincere in, in sharing your story with us. Thank you so much. Thank you too, Stephanie. It was a pleasure. So guys, remember remember to follow Whitney Rochester. That's that's your that's your handle on Instagram. Yes, yeah. At Whitney Rochester. At Whitney Rochester. Any any other ways that people can find you or reach out to you in case they, they may need to reach out for, for whatever reason, whether for, to ask you to speak somewhere or if they need to speak to you personally, what's the best way to reach you? Well, you can email me, Whitney, at WhitneyRochester.com. We can um, do individual coaching. I also do group coaching. Um, there's a link for that on my website. So there's a form to fill out on my website. And, you know, I can be reached by phone, one 866 so those are the main ways. You can send me a message on Instagram or email me or visit my website, whitneyrochester.com. Perfect. That's all the contacts right there. When them cancer, them never get all the information that they needed. So thank you. <laughs> thank you again, Whitney. God bless you. It was my pleasure. Bye. The When I Was a Girl podcast is a space where the life stories of survivors are shared clearly, truthfully, and with a focus on restoration and hope. For anyone who has experienced abuse, we encourage you to reach out to us here at Girls First International. You can find us at wearegirlsfirst.com or find us on Instagram at girlsfirstja and on Facebook at girlsfirst.com.